but he was doing things like uh, vocabulary concordances in Shakespeare. So he'd, he'd be finding out, you know, how many how many of a particular word would occur, the frequencies, uh, correlations like that. He would play around. He generated uh, or he created a poetry generator. These, oh, wow! Like these these kinds of projects. When I when I heard that these were possible avenues for fun with powers that I didn't have, that was very enticing to me. Hi, and welcome to the Toronto Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Sergio Martins. Today I'm joined by Danny Fecta, a lifelong Toronto resident, poetry lover, and former middle school teacher. Recently, Danny decided to leave teaching and become a software developer. He shares his experience with us. Here's episode four of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Danny, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So uh, why don't we start by telling us who you are and what you've been up to? Sure. Um, my name is Danny Fekta. I was a teacher for the last six years, um, and I come from an educational background of humanities, so English and history. Um, I was teaching special education after doing a master's degree in education, and because I was the most technologically savvy person at the little private school that I was teaching at, that sort of, the technological education fell to me. Um, I sort of discovered, rediscovered a love of coding. I had made, I'd made really basic computer games when I was really young uh, and hadn't touched them for about 15 years. Rediscovered coding and thought that I wanted to explore it a little bit. Hmm. So. Interesting. So you've always been interested in uh, programming since you were a young kid. Yeah. Uh, my dad actually worked for IBM uh, when I was really, really young, before before the uh, the consumer end got taken over by Lenovo. So Yeah, uh, yeah they sold it. They, oh, did they? They predicted that uh, the laptop hardware would be commoditized, okay. and that's why they sold it. And they sold it, everyone thought they were nuts. They sold it when it was at a peak. Huh. Uh, but they saw that was one of their better moves in the latter years. I, I worked out for them. Yeah. Ah, cool. Uh, interesting. So, so that's where you, I, that's probably where you, your interest came from. Almost certainly. Uh, since I was young, Dad would bring home ridiculously powerful computers with. I think that he was so proud. There was 15 megabytes of hard drive space on one of them, uh, running an old 8088. It was it was very cool, uh, and that was that was my childhood. I'll resist my temptation to nerd out with you on that. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Why I was really excited to talk to you is you're someone who's recently just decided to start writing code professionally, and you just went and did it. Yeah, uh, I guess so. It, it, it doesn't feel that way from where I'm sitting. It was, it was much more of a scaffolded process. Um, I knew that I wanted a new challenge. I knew that what little coding I did, and when I, when I explored it using free online tutorials, I knew that the way I problem solved and the way that it made my brain feel as I was doing that was really enticing to me. So around the time that I was exploring this stuff, just as a, as a hobby, uh, a couple of my really close friends who had gone through BitMaker strongly recommended that I, that I look into the program. And that was sort of the beginning of it. I ultimately decided on Lighthouse Labs rather than BitMaker. And one of the things that, uh, that influenced that decision, a couple of things, it was more focused on JavaScript and less focused on Ruby. Uh, at the time, BitMaker was the inverse of that. And Lighthouse Labs offered a really, what they described as a fairly comprehensive prep course that was mandatory. 
um, and free. So <laughs> uh, trying that out gave me a much clearer sense that this was a path that I think I could be successful in. Mm, right. So it's not it was not just like you you dove in, you did some research. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. You were also following in an example that's set by your peers, I suppose. Yeah. Um, a couple of my friends, one of them had a science background and had worked in science education, uh, sorry, uh, science communication for a while. Um, and the other one came from a background very similar to mine. He did uh, humanities and had essentially no computer background to my knowledge but throve and found ways to extend his interest in humanities into the abilities that he got as a as a computer user and as a as a programmer uh, and that was very exciting to me it it meant that i i'm trying to remember what i expected this to be and how different i expected this to be from my education and my humanities background but he was doing things like uh, vocabulary concordances in Shakespeare, so he'd, he'd be finding out, you know, how many how many of, of a particular word would occur, the frequencies, uh, correlations like that. He would play around. He generated, uh, or he created a poetry generator. These, oh wow! Like these these kinds of projects. When I when I heard that these were possible avenues for fun with powers that I didn't have, that was very enticing to me. That was oh, wow. So there was like a glitter in your eye when you saw these these projects that your friends were undertaking after having learned these skills. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, so that was a big motivator. Yes, for sure. I can really appreciate that as a motivating factor. A lot of why I got into software was, what do you mean I can just tell a computer to do this and they'll just go and do it and I don't have to do it anymore? Like, and oh man, when I when I first experienced uh, Bash, like the, the terminal, it, yeah. uh, I come from a Windows background and... I mean, I, I, again, I used DOS when I was really, really young, and I would occasionally pop back into there if I needed to use it. But going deep into Bash and discovering Linux, uh, it was between Linux and, uh, and uh, Mac for me. And for reasons of prejudice, I wound up using Linux. I felt like I was being handed a jackhammer when I first experienced the terminal and started learning some of the basic and incredibly powerful commands. So that was cool. Right. That was intoxicating. <laughs> I, I really get that. And it's it's like a whole world is open to you all of a sudden because you've got this. It's not, it's like a Swiss army jackhammer. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. So let's go back to, let's talk about this this course that you did. So you said you did a uh, light, light, lightning labs? Lighthouse labs. Lighthouse labs course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, it was a, as far as I can tell, the most intense course any human being has ever tried to undertake outside of military. It was definitely the most intense thing I've done since sort of crunch time for my thesis for my master's, uh, and definitely more prolonged. It was, um, so the, uh, prep course, uh, I did over the summer. You're, you are required to take the prep course before you begin in the program. Um, the prep course is about 40 hours of independent work, which involves uh, a lot of reading, a lot of setting up your environment so that when you actually get there, you're good to jump in. So learning the editor a little bit, that kind of thing. Uh, there are stretch projects that you can do after you finish the main coursework, including one 40-hour project that I didn't wind up touching. But there were a lot of there were a lot of little they call them katas like little little puzzles to solve little problems to solve exercises in pattern recognition and and manipulation which were a tremendous amount of fun and then 
we started the program uh, and the program runs for 10 weeks. Typically, I was on site for between 10 and 13 hours per day, uh, yeah. uh, which includes six days a week. Five days a week? Five days a week, and then typically weekends, Saturday, maybe about six or seven hours, and Sunday if I really needed to, maybe four or five hours. But So I, five days a week, 10 to 13 hours, and you had homework. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, homework over the weekends, not homework during the day, thankfully. It was, we had about three to four hours of lecture within those 10 to 13 hours. And then beyond the lectures, everything was fairly structured and time boxed through their learning management software. So you'd basically get a docket of things to do for the day that had to do with the that had to do with the lecture. Each thing on the docket had an expected time range. Everything that you did uh, requested feedback in terms of the amount of time that it actually took you. So that was a living document the entire time. And you just work through one end to the other. So feedback for all the assignments was built into the course. Yes, absolutely. Feedback at every step. We also had, it wasn't, it wasn't just us sitting at tables kind of working through these assignments. What Lighthouse does is during, the, during Monday to Friday, they have mentors on site. And mentors are either the instructors who are delivering the lectures or they're members of the programming community. Um, I think either paid or volunteer. It depends. They're, they're from all stripes. And effectively, they're there to help us if we get stuck. The, the approach is, if you're struggling with something, try it for about 15 minutes. If you aren't making any progress in 15 minutes, usually it's, it's about a two-minute session with a mentor to see what the problem is. And coming from a teaching background, I was, I was pretty wary of this process because I was worried that, um, I mean, we're always concerned about things like learned helplessness, uh, which is the idea that if, if you encounter difficulty and you encounter an easy solution that you can use anytime you want, you start to become less resilient. You start to rely on it more. And these folks, I don't think all of them were trained teachers, but it seemed like they were definitely trained within that context not to give everything away, definitely to, to scaffold us rather than to drag us to the next step. Uh, that was very gratifying. Right, so you had these mentors that would go around and they know what you're undertaking and they can kind of uh, understand your mindset. So they're not just handing you an answer, they're giving you a little hint or tip to get you on the right path. Yeah, um, many of them were familiar with the coursework because uh, there, are sort of, there are staggered cohorts at Lighthouse. So you've got usually two cohorts in the, in the space doing the same thing, just at different stages. But many of the mentors, uh, not all the mentors were intimately familiar with the assignments. And so it was really interesting, actually, because you would see how they would grok the general shape of what you were trying to do and how they would look, how they would identify patterns in order to identify your problem and help you communicate your problem and then help you figure out what needed to be done in that given situation. So seeing them puzzle things out was very helpful in and of itself. Gotcha. It, it wasn't uh, because these guys weren't all experts. Some of them were just seeing this for the first time, same as you. Yeah. And you got to see someone with experience in the realm of code related problem solving mm. and what their mindset was. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's something that uh, I don't even know how many times around, around my office personally, we talk about, 
communication, being able to convey your thinking process and how your understanding of things is like number one. And, you know, if there's trouble there, a thing that might take a minute or two to discuss might take 20 minutes instead. Something, something that I learned to teach myself in, in teaching uh, and that I definitely was forced to master in this program is that kind of precision in communication. So let's talk about um, what was kind of the feel or the vibe of everybody on the first day? And then what, was, what did you guys jump into? Uh, well, in terms of the students, it was all over the place. There were a few of the students came from computer science backgrounds and they seemed very chill and, and pretty, pretty relaxed about things. Um, there, were, there was one other teacher in my cohort, one other former teacher. There were people, there was a delivery truck driver, people coming from all walks of life, generally excited. Um, in the first week, we were strongly encouraged to do pair programming, which is something that I had not encountered before. Um, Tell us what that is. Sure. Okay. Um, so they framed it in terms of a driver and a navigator for like a rally race. So one person is at the keyboard typing in commands for a particular, for a particular task that we're trying to do. And their job is tactical navigation. So they're, they're trying to figure out exactly what commands are necessary. And the navigator is the person who is trying to solve the broader problem. So they're thinking about what kinds of commands are we, are we going to be typing in? And if they see that the driver is getting stuck, or if they notice that the driver has made some sort of syntax error, it's their job to kind of keep an eye on those, th those sorts of things. And when it works, it's fantastic because you, you develop a rhythm and you keep each other from getting stuck on things like forgetting what you were doing or not knowing how to proceed because you know the, you, you know the command, but you just, you just can't remember how it was phrased, that sort of thing. Um, we had learned a little bit of JavaScript initially uh, over the... Over the prep course? Over the prep course. Um, so we were solving actually problems that were a little bit simpler than the hardest bit of the prep course. I think kind of bringing people, bringing people up to speed, getting them, making sure that everyone was comfortable with the, uh, with the editor. We were using Sublime, or we were encouraged to use Sublime for this. We worked towards, I think by the end of the day, we were building something that was scraping GitHub for uh, avatars. I... Huh. That doesn't sound like it's allowed in their policy. That sounds like something they wouldn't let you do. Well, I couldn't possibly comment on that. That's you'd, you'd have to check with Lighthouse. But yeah, so we were we were not doing front end stuff at this point. We were using Node as the as the back end and as the REPL. Right. So you were using JavaScript not in the browser. You're using it on your computer. Yeah. But you were using that to load a web page and then parse something out of the page. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Something that would take a human, you know, a minute per page or 30 seconds per page. Sure. And we were winding up with folders with, you know, 30 to, to 50. Like we, we had to, we were asked to put limits on it so as not to inconvenience GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they will, I think they will catch you because there's a lot of people who crawl GitHub for, for interesting things like, did anybody accidentally check in an RSA key to their GitHub yes. that unlocks their server somewhere on Amazon? <laughs> so... Which happens way more often than you think. I think I have been responsible for something similar, <laughs> uh, though not nearly as damaging. Yeah, so uh, GitHub like knows what a bot looks like when it's crawling its own page. Cool. Uh, so good that you guys put limits and didn't just like get Lighthouse locked out, locked yep. out of GitHub. <laughs> uh, cool. So 
the very first day, you guys reviewed some stuff that you did, and then you dove right in and started actually building something useful. Yes. Um, from there, we we consolidated in the following in the following couple of days in that first week, we uh, consolidated. Basically, we were talking. We were getting more familiar with data structures and navigating data structures. So, uh, arrays, objects, stuff that seems incredibly basic now. I I was fine with arrays after the prep course. I was feeling a little bit shaky on objects, and now and now all of this stuff. It's cool to think that I can think in terms of these and drive down into the structure conceptually and and pull stuff out. So, right. That's very cool. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So if you overhear some, some, you know, comp sci undergrads using the buzzword or the term algorithms and data structures, yeah. that isn't just a word like, you know what that means now. No, I can, I can talk to you about uh, big O notation now, which Whoa. is pretty fun. That, that I didn't get to that till like third year or second year in my program. Well, you probably did it a little bit more thoroughly than I did. Yeah. It's incredible to me. I, the perception I got from the outside was that it took me, you know, four years of industry experience to learn all of these things that maybe, you know, you didn't get them in depth in this course, but you did it all in a 10-week span, you know, that's less than a quarter. Yeah. As someone who, I really enjoyed my university experience and I really, I really enjoyed diving deeply into topics, I was hesitant to cover things. I, I was worried that we would be covering things in a very cursory way, given the time constraints on this on this course. And Lighthouse is very clear about the idea that they're not. We're not coming out of the program knowing everything that we need to know and being experts in everything that of we course. need to know. Well, you yeah. say, of course. I I didn't know that that's how this industry works. Uh, but I'm I've been at this company two years, and I'm still learning all the time. There, there's never a point in a software dev's life where learning has finished. It's cool to know that. Uh, and it's it's cool to have been inculcated with that. What I'm finding uh, in the job that I'm working now is that I'm really happy to be recognizing ideas and terms kind of on the face. And then if I need to know how to work with them, first of all, I'm a little bit more comfortable with that ambiguity when in the past this would have, you know, oh my God, I'm a fraud. I shouldn't have been hired. I got to get out of here. Um so I'm a little bit more comfortable dealing with that kind of ambiguity. I've got resources to to learn about them. So that, that was very valuable to me. So let's get a quick overview of everything that you touched on. You mentioned you learned about Node.js and JavaScript in the back end. Yep. Things were, things were more or less project-based. Most weeks we were working towards a project by the end of the week, but we were spending the earlier part of the week learning the components and, and learning about the components. Uh, perfecting that avatar scraper was what we ultimately worked towards by the end of the first week and making sure that we were strong on things like closures and callbacks. By the end of the second week, we did a full stack, really ugly application, kind of like, it, we called it tiny URL. I think it, it effectively like Bitly, where you can give it a long URL, it will maintain links for you, and then you can use those links in order to go to whatever shortened URLs you, you fed it. Um, so that was... You did that after two weeks? Yes. Wow. Uh, felt very shaky coming out of it, certainly. It was... It was um... right. So g- give me a quick summary of like every week. Or... Yeah, sure. So after that, uh, the week afterwards, we focused on single-page applications, Ajax, and uh, we learned our first database, which was Mongo. And we were using that for uh, effectively a really basic Twitter clone. I mean, not 
not everything that Twitter does, but the idea that you had one page that multiple people could tweet to, and you would see the the records displayed uh, in real time as you were contributing to them, doing things like uh, monitoring the character limit on screen as you were doing it, uh, submitting, having animations, that sort of thing. Wow. So uh, you and I could both be on laptops. I could add a new message and it would show up on yours right away. Yes. Um, Something we take for granted today, but I, I know building that kind of stuff used to be really difficult. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate how much work goes into that. As do I now. I think building that stuff is still pretty difficult for me, but it's I know what the components are, which is pretty cool. Um, after we did that, that was Twitter. Um, in our fourth week, what we did was, um, we were working towards our first kind of major group project. Up until that point, we had been doing things independently and Git and GitHub were integral to all of the exercises that, that we were doing. So we were developing a healthy fear of the power and the mistakes that you can make there. And then in the fourth week, we were assigned into groups and we were given a list of sort of basic project goals to pick from. And that was our first experience of working in a team in a, in a Git environment, which was catastrophic and exciting. <laughs> Better in a classroom than elsewhere. Yeah. Like I've, worked, I've worked before and I've been there too, where you show up at a job, I've learned all these computer science-y things in school mm. no one ever taught us version control <laughs> and so it got to ah. an office oh yeah and the mistakes that come from not understanding the concepts yep it was like hey uh it doesn't show up on my computer anymore and when i try to pull it doesn't work and then you know your experienced guy goes in and they're like oh it's gone <laughs> what did you do <laughs> so and then yeah, all the alchemy required in navigating the branches that you didn't even know existed and yeah, there's a lot there. It's good that uh, they start you off with Git. There's been a history of a lot of other version control systems. And Git, from what I can see, is a little more complicated than some of the other ones, but it's more powerful and more efficient. Uh, and I think slowly everyone is moving to Git. So it's good that they didn't uh, start you in the past with something a little bit older. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, it felt that that was sort of being handed a jackhammer again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um for that project, we ultimately decided on making the equivalent of Pinterest for educational resources. And wow. uh, we had been taught in the third week, we'd been exposed to Postgres and uh, SQL. So we were using, uh, rather than a document database, we were using Postgres to track user records for these resources that they were putting in. Uh we had a lot of freedom, and one thing that we really wanted to do, the way that the, the the way that we saw in Pinterest and in Slack, is automatically pulling images and titles from resources. So, so if I paste the URL, it'll immediately give you the title of the article. It'll give you uh, the picture if there's been a picture associated with it. Exactly. Um, Holy crap! <laughs> so well, uh, that is not it's not trivial to do that. It turned out that it was though. Like it given given. <laughs> I mean, comparatively, it wouldn't have been trivial when I started, but given how common that behavior was, we had gotten into the habit of, of appreciating someone has probably wanted to achieve this and figured out a way to make it easy for themselves and then made that available to other people. And when we described what we were hoping to accomplish to one of the mentors, he was like, oh, yeah, use the open graph standard, which, again, n none of us had heard of, but... Uh, so I've never heard of that. Okay, uh, so... Can you tell, take a minute to tell us what that is? Sure. Uh it was my first experience using an API. 
And what you do is you feed it the URL. So again, incredibly simple because our users were going to be uh, putting in URLs to the resources they wanted to track anyway. And apparently many, many websites and many uh, platforms conform to these metadata tags in their pages that uh, Open Graph knows to parse through. And it will return a JSON with things like an image URL for the page or the title or the subject or tags for content. Um, and because so many people are conforming to this standard, we just pulled them in and then we parsed through the JSON that was spat out by the API and plugged the information in where we wanted it. Um, right. So that made it, that took a problem from something with like a million unknowns to actually very simple. You just call an API and you get the data you want. Yeah. So many, so many delightful surprises through these processes of things that we expected to be incredibly difficult that someone else had solved and then made accessible to everyone that, uh, communal ethos of sharing solutions was surprising and really gratifying to me. I was expecting to run into a lot of, you know, proprietary trade secrets, that that sort of thing. You know, if we spent all this time and money doing all this work, you know, we'll, we'll keep it to ourselves. And the open source community is delightful. Man, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that as someone Who's, who's been in and around the open source community for a long time. And I always, always push wherever I can, like, guys, we should open source this. We should, we can do a little bit more work and then make it valuable to a lot of people. And there's a feedback loop. Like other people will say, hey, this is great, except I want to add this one feature or I want to polish this one area of it. And before you know it, you have a group, a, com a small community of people who are working together to a certain problem. And what happens is, yeah, libraries like this become open source, become super easy to use. And everybody starts conforming to a standard. And before you know it, the world is easier. The world is easier, richer, and it is built on people collaborating and valuing collaboration. I love it. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that as part of the curriculum, you also add to an existing project. Sure. Okay. We were told that this would be really difficult and unpleasant, and we were given the justification. The justification was... If you get a job, you may not be working in your most comfortable language, and you are almost certainly not going to be working with a code base that you designed and you know like the back of your hand. So to simulate that, over the weekend between, I think it was week six and week seven, uh, here, learn Ruby. You've never touched Ruby before. Here, learn a little bit about Rails. Um, okay, you're now working on, they called it Jungle. It was effectively a, an Amazon.com clone. Wow. <laughs> and it, it's a Rails app. It's not a very good Rails app. Uh, we were told by the mentors who had to work with us on it. But here's this Rails app. Here's Ruby. Here are some resources to figure out how to parse through these structures and patterns that you have never seen before. And now let's start implementing features and fixing bugs. Uh, and that was the week. And that was horrible, but extremely valuable, undeniably, undeniably valuable and justified. That's most reflective of when you jump into a new job, you're not going to know the way that they set things up. You might not be familiar with their specific language or framework or database, but you need to uh, start contributing and, and learning. I don't even know how to put it. <laughs> Living in that space of incompetence and fear of damaging the nice work of other people 
uh, and moving emotionally from that to a sense of, all right, I'm going to tentatively do this thing. And I know how to recognize patterns, even if, or shapes, even if they're not shapes in the language that I learned in. That's right, because every programming language has loops and variables and data structures and dictionaries and, and lists that look the same or arrays look the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Ruby is opinionated in ways that JavaScript wasn't opinionated or had different opinions. So like loops, loops, sorry, loops are really passe. Very strange. Uh, yeah, Ruby's uh, a little more loose in its syntax uh, in the way that you can structure things. You've got a lot of choices. Yes. Whereas I feel like you're you're more forced down a specific path in JavaScript. Uh, so I, I can see that. And especially as someone who's worked on a very large Ruby project before, mm-hmm. you have sections that are written in one way by one guy and another section is written another way by another guy. Because there's so many ways to write it? That's right. Okay. And both of them are great. They're just, <laughs> they look totally different. <laughs> So yeah, let's talk about the final project that you worked on. Sure. Um, at the end, about halfway through the eighth week of the 10-week uh, course, we got together in groups of two to three, and we'd, we'd been encouraged to start thinking about something that we wanted to build in the, in the weeks prior to that. Right, something big. Something big, something, something that could incorporate or show off a lot of the things that we had learned, but really something that we cared about and wanted to see existing. Uh, that didn't necessarily exist already. So don't build a clone of X, Y, and Z, but if you like what is in X and Y and Z, and you think that if they were put together, it would be new and valuable, do that. And and we'll try to support you through that. Uh, one of the projects we hadn't spoken about uh, involved WebSockets and building effectively a, a synchronous chat client. And right at the end is kind of a throwaway thing they talked a little bit about string interpretation, the sorts of things where, for example, in Slack, if you if you type a code at the beginning of your entry, it will do a particular thing, programming the interface to recognize those things. And again, because I'm a poetry nerd, I was thinking back to, well, okay, I know that there are probably node packages that will scan through my text and check them against a dictionary there's got to be something that will check the syllables in what I'm typing. Yes. Okay, cool. Obviously there is. There's something that will check the stresses in what I'm typing. Yes. Okay, obviously there is. Cool. All right. If I pulled those together and I ran some text through it, it would be relatively trivial to program something to tell me whether I had written a line of iambic pentameter. And then to start keeping track of whether have I typed an iambic pentameter couplet. And then stupid, like, again, this was, this was such a stupid idea, but I was having so much fun imagining it. And I'm thinking, all right, well, okay, let's say there are two idiots like me in this chat room who care about this kind of stupidity. And we want to see who the better poet is. So now the two of us are trying to communicate to each other in a normal chat, but we're getting points if we do, if we use uh, metrical poetry structures. And thinking, okay, this, this is a game. This is something that I could design. So I desperately wanted to see if there were any other uh, poetry nerds in the class. And there weren't, but there was another education nerd who liked poetry and liked the idea of building something like this. So that evolved into building a synchronous uh, WebSocket-based game. We were helped to focus the idea down a little bit and kind of crawl up the long tail of the internet to be a little bit more accessible and interesting to more people. Um, And in the end, what we did was we created a synchronous 
language-based game platform. What we wanted to do is we wanted to make a platform that could run multiple different games with different rule sets that could instantiate multiple game rooms that could then be occupied by multiple users at the same time. Um, and we got pretty far along, along that objective. We wound up with one working game room, two game models that from round to round would be loaded in randomly or alternatively, however you wanted to do it. One of them was trying to type in rhymes for uh, a pool of random seed words, and one was trying to type in synonyms for a random pool of seed words. Uh, and in the process, uh, we discovered uh, an API to do the rhyme check. That was really, that was fun and exciting. We learned how to... <laughs> so, okay, so I don't know if I should be talking about this here, but I'll try it and you can cut it out if you think it's not a good idea. Sure, go for um, it. A lot of the open APIs that we found for thesaurus searches for synonym lookups were not very good. They did not get us a large enough pool for the possible answer bank in a given round. Uh, thesaurus.com was really good, but they did not release an API. Uh, they were proprietary. But they had a really consistent page layout. So we designed a scraper using Cheerio, uh, and we populated our answer bank with that and felt extremely powerful and a little bit badass. Yeah, it's something <laughs> you learned early in the course. So, and it's not like you you have this perpetually running. It's you did this once, you collected your data. Yes. And now you're fine. Yeah. Man, think about how many words did you scrape? Do you have a rough estimate? <laughs> um, how many synonyms did you look up? Well, it it does scrape for each round. Uh, the way that we set up that particular system was Start with a random start with a random word pool. If you are a reader of XKCD, at one point, uh, one of the comics that he did talks about how really good passwords, instead of being a whole bunch of garbled letters, uh, just take a whole bunch of normal words and string them together in a way that you can remember but makes no sense to anyone else, and you yes. can have a very long password. Uh, and then Randall Monroe released a database of those words. Someone took that database and just made a really basic random password string generator pulling from that database we took that to get our list of basic words to send out to the thesaurus we designed our scraper so that first it would look for uh, look for antonyms of the word uh, didn't find any okay pick another word look for antonyms for that found some cool uh, look for synonyms of the antonym if there are in our case 50 or more synonyms cool Look for synonyms of the first word, if there are 50 or more, cool. So now you've got uh, an answer bank of a minimum of 100 words. Proceed. Right. And if not, then start again. Um, so this is how you, you put together your data that you were going to use for your game. Yeah. Uh, so to answer your, <laughs> to answer your question from, from ages ago, uh, I don't know. We probably scraped probably by now tens of thousands of words because it does this every time there's a round. So... But we haven't been shut down yet. And we have since found APIs that provide better answer banks that are not breaking any end user license agreements. That's really cool because you took an idea that you had, you took the tools that you learned, and even found a roadblock, which was, shoot, I can't find a really good thesaurus for synonyms and antonyms. And now this thing exists that wouldn't have existed before. Yes. It's a joyful process. It's, and it's a very addictive process, too. 
Um, by the time I was finished this project, I was thinking of other games that I wanted to design, um, other educational applications. So yeah, I haven't felt creative and inspired this way for a really long time. And that, again, delightful. I keep using that word. I'm really, really, really happy with what I've learned. It's, it's, I, the, our listeners can't see this, but you are delighted right now. <laughs> uh, can, is there somewhere that people can go and find these games and play them? Or is it kind of taken offline after the course is done? We were going to deploy to Heroku. We didn't have time to do that before our final presentation. And I was actually hired like three days after the final presentation. So I haven't had time to go and deploy it the way that we were planning to. uh, Or clean up and refactor the way that we were planning to. And it was... We knew that we were taking shortcuts and accruing technical debt, right? Right. So before I release this stuff, I would love to make it a little bit less embarrassing. <laughs> um, but I can, uh, I can absolutely give you the, the GitHub URL if you want to include that in the show notes sure. or whatever. We'll definitely put it there. Uh, um, I want to talk to you. So you got a job like immediately after this course. Yeah. Um, How did, what happened there? Did you oh, go out <laughs> looking or did someone find you? Um, so what happened was... Lighthouse does a lot of things to connect us with the uh, with the industry in Toronto, and they're also fairly sensitive to what we are interested in pursuing as potential developers. So there were two things that Lighthouse did before I graduated. The first was effectively like speed dating. It was it was speed interviewing. They brought in or they invited in and got a, a number of companies, and we each got about six minutes with them on a rotating basis to interview, tell them a little bit about us and about the stack that we're, that we're working in and learn about them. A couple of people in our cohort got jobs out of that, and that was week eight. So that was two weeks before the end of the course. They, Whoa, they you were weren't already... even finished yet. Yeah. From what I hear, it's, it's common for one or two people in the cohort to have that kind of success. And knowing those people who got those jobs, they, were, they definitely deserve them. They were, they were the best of us. And then after that working towards the demonstration of the final project, uh, there are two demos on our final day. There is a tech demo for, again, Lighthouse invites companies to come in and watch these demos. Um, And then there's one for friends and family, which is less technical and more fun afterwards. And it was through that tech demo that uh, I made the connection and I was invited for a conversation pretty much the day after the tech demo. Wow. So this, this course had just finished. Yes. And you were now interviewing at a company. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's like a highlight reel at the end where they literally invite uh, employers from the industry. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. What did you show off? I'm more curious. What did you show off for the friends and family? One? <laughs> um, well, we got everyone playing the game. Uh, we, we warned people that we invited ahead of time. Uh, to bring a laptop if if they were willing to do so. Um, we made sure that they'd be able to connect to our local Wi-Fi because, again, we hadn't deployed outside of, outside of our computer. And because it was synchronous, we had the game up on the presentation screen and we had at least 25 or 30 people playing in the game simultaneously. You had the wow. scoreboard flying up and down all over the place. You had people screaming at each other. The, the, the rules of the game were... Uh, sort of boggle based so if someone guesses an answer that has already been guessed all they do is they remove the points from the person who had originally gotten it so right. people were really pissed off at other people it was really it was a lot of fun to see we also did kind of a quick presentation under the hood so we had just learned object-oriented programming in a more structured way about a week before we did this project 
And I wanted to make, because I figured everything would be modular in this project, we wanted to make a, a game platform. I tried to apply everything that I could in terms of that, in terms of that architecture. And so what we did was we did this quick presentation about how the objects in this app interact with each other with fun pictures and arrows and, and animations. And we, and we ran through that. So that was, that was a fun part of the presentation as well. Wow. I can only imagine the, how you felt about this thing that you'd built, you and your teammates, and now you had an entire room full of people. Uh, and I'm guessing they were all in one lobby together. Yeah. So they were all playing together, <laughs> people losing their minds. We had actually practiced the tech demo way more than the, than the friends and family demo. And we had hyped up the friends and family demo way more than, than the former. So very nerve wracking. Also, there were technical issues. Of course, there were technical issues for the presentation. If you build something in two weeks or three weeks, you know. Well, no, the program worked perfectly. My, the, I was connected to a projector that my computer didn't recognize. So, oh, my goodness. Like, like, again, like ridiculous tiny hang-ups when all the other complicated stuff was working well. So, so you actually built something that worked you know, properly out of the gate. Yes. Which was something that was totally inconceivable a few weeks ago, a few weeks prior. Yes. Wow. <laughs> no, I, That's incredible. Uh, now that I'm in the job, I get a sense of how green I was, like how little I knew, even though I thought I knew absolutely everything in this tech demo. Um, so you'd learned all this material and then you, you, started, you started at this job already? Yeah, I've actually just finished my first week there. Um, so, so tell me what was that like after all these tools that you learned, you felt great? <laughs> uh, well, it was Ruby with Rails. So getting back to Jungle, it was, it was a language that I was not very strong in. It was... Uh, yeah, so I had some flashbacks to that week. It was a framework that I was happy to see the end of at the end of that week. Um, I was so grateful for the trust that the employer placed in me, given that I was fresh out of this program, that I really didn't want to disappoint him, uh, disappoint the, the tech lead who, who had talked to me and, and hired me. And he was, he's been incredibly kind about things. Like I, I got there and felt in, just completely incompetent, um, forgetting, getting flustered, forgetting basic things that were very straightforward for me. And I mean, integral to the project that I, that I developed and that, that potentially got me this job. Um, so feeling like a bit of a fraud initially, we really lucked out because the, the head coder that we're working under is completely dedicated to our education. I mean, we're, we're, we're hired on, uh, as interns and it's sort of a, it's a three month, uh, probationary period effectively. Uh, which is fairly standard for people coming out of Lighthouse, from what I hear. And his that three month probation is is every job I've ever seen. Is that standard in in the industry? Yeah. Okay. Cool. And basically, what they said was, we want to help you figure out what you are good at, help you specialize in that, and educate you to the point where we can't afford you anymore. Uh, and an employer said that. Yeah. Which is, um, <laughs> okay. Deal. Yeah, sure. That sounds that way better than I could have expected. And consequently, when I felt really incompetent in, in this in this first week that I've that I've kind of struggled through, I was worried that I was disappointing them and the faith that they were putting in me for that. That's that's been a bit of a struggle, uh, but it seems to be exclusively in my own brain. They have been extremely encouraging. They they're telling me, you know, everyone 
I mean, you, you I seem really to get that. Yeah. Uh, that that those first few days when you show up, there's a lot of stuff up here in, in my head that says, oh my God, I have so much to learn. I don't know all these systems that all the people around me, they're experts in. And I found even where I work now, I wasn't expected to deliver anything tangibly useful or meaningful for like two whole months. Okay. And even then we start by my, you know, the work that I'm expected to do is about an hour a day. And that's relative to existing. So if the existing guys are doing six or seven hours of work in a day, mm-hmm. I'm expected to do that equivalent or only one hour's worth of that equivalent. That's like the equivalent of the, the value that you're producing and everything else is learning and integrating and becoming more. That's right. Okay. Uh, and that's after, you know, I've, I've been in the industry many, many years and every single job, <laughs> that's how it starts. Okay. So that's, that's a huge relief to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're, you know, you're doing, it's incredible to me the pace at which you're doing all of this. And the fact that you've found an employer who's willing to, I mean, every employer is taking a risk on their employees, but this employer really cares about helping you to learn those skills to make you, you know, a dev they can't afford in their own words. <laughs> I, I, it seems too good to be true. And it's, I think that's a testament to the industry that exists here and the, the supply and demand struggle. I think we're getting more and more people into the world of software and the world of tech, but still there are far more jobs uh, op- sitting open or that are not adequately filled mm-hmm. as, as the employees would like, the employers would like, sorry. Um, and I, I keep seeing this. That's why there's such a recruiter industry here where, you know, if you're attempting to be a nurse, there's not a recruiter that's trying to find you to fit into a position because the supply and demand factors are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and pe- people, you know, my se- colleagues and myself included, we get harassed by recruiters a lot in Toronto huh. uh, because that's the industry, you know. So I hope that one of the, actually one of the things that I want to get out of this podcast is to show people that there's not some prerequisite wizardry that you're born with to getting in this industry. Anybody can jump in and do it and start uh, making, having a meaningful impact I really felt there was a lot of like, no, I can't do that. That's only for people who are tech people. There's, there's nothing that says you are a tech person or not, other than your willingness to, to get into that world. I definitely experienced that firsthand. And I wouldn't have believed it before, before trying it. So I hope that people hear that. I hope that, he, I hope that people hear that message. That's, I probably would have tried this a lot sooner if I had known. You are. Um, you said you were a teacher for many years before this. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask your age? Sure. Or ballpark? Uh, no, that's fine. I'm at the time of this recording. I am 35 years old. Uh, I was a little bit worried that jumping into a new industry at, at this point in my life uh, was a little bit late. It was nice at Lighthouse because there was a huge range of people there. I think generally the average age was a little bit younger than me, probably late 20s. But there were mature students there in their 40s and 50s as well. And even if even if my career is not as a developer, full stop, if, if I'm using the skills that I have gotten and bringing them back to industries that I'm more established in, I think it will have been a valuable process. Uh, but at this point, I don't know if that's my plan. I'm not working in an educational capacity right now, but I'm enjoying the work. I'm enjoying the challenge. And I'll see where that takes me. So something uh, as a result of the course I wanted to find out, mm-hmm. you talked about 
one thing that was far easier than you expected, your example with um, looking up words and being able to parse out sentence structure. Yeah. Was there anything that you discovered as part of the course that was far more complex than you expected? Um, what I am having the most difficulty with and the most sustained difficulty, like like closures and, and callbacks were really hard until they started to make sense and then they clicked in that. And that was a, that was a pattern of learning that repeated multiple times. What is a persistent difficulty for me is when code is extremely modular and I need to keep sort of a mental schema of all of those pieces in my head in order to operate. Um, for example, not having a lot of Rails experience. I know that I know that Rails is built to be an incredibly standardized modular system so that once you understand it, you can rely on pieces being where you expect them to be, even if it's an application that you didn't design yourself. Um, but until I get there, it's difficult for me to keep all those pieces juggled so that when I want to add a piece of functionality, I know what to pull from and in what places. Um, it was difficult for me also. I want to understand everything that I'm doing. Uh, so if I am using a built-in function of a language, I want to understand how it operates. If I'm using uh, a library that has functionality in it, I feel really uncomfortable just calling those functions, calling those methods, and trusting, you know, input in into this black box, input out, cool, move on, move forward. And yet when I slow down and try to go into those things, I feel myself bogging down and I worry that, no, I should be moving faster. That's something that continues to be difficult for me, figuring out a balance there. Does that ever get better? Yes. I, I found that I've gotten a lot faster at parsing through those things. As you get more familiar with the structures of things, like you talked about, even though you learned JavaScript when you jumped to Rails, you understood the, the patterns and the structures were similar. I found that that database uh, in, your, in my head has grown there's certain pattern expectations that help me to understand okay. more quickly. So I'm similar where I really love to understand the entire picture uh, and, and how everything works before I really dive in mm -hmm. to, to making changes. And I've gotten way faster at that when I started. And it's just because of those I've seen more, you know, so I can I can I have more of those short circuits in my head. Like, oh, yeah, I know this. Let's move <laughs> on. OK, thank you. That's very encouraging. Yeah. And the. And there was a there was a term for what you were talking about there, where you have you have to hold these different pieces in your head at the same time, for you to really be efficient and productive at what you're doing. The term is the crystal castle, where <laughs> you heard this before. No, but uh, but it's it's beautifully evocative of that frustration and delicacy. Is that the yes, idea? Yes, exactly. So you slowly assemble this castle in your head made of crystal, if you can imagine it, just floating right above right above your cranium. Mm -hmm. And then somebody taps you on the shoulder and asks you a question. And, and it just comes crashing down. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. Oh, okay. It's really good that other people are, are feeling this kind of frustration in that experience. I mean, it's not good. I'm sorry for all of us. <laughs> but uh... Uh, it's, the way that, it's the way that it is. Okay. That's the nature of the problems, right? That's one of the, some companies have a policy that if this developer's headphones are on, that you don't bother them mm -hmm. because that castle will come crashing down. Uh, not everywhere is the same. Like the office that I work now, there's no such concept. Okay. But uh, if you ever watched this Facebook movie, The Social Network, 
they had that concept of he's jacked in, <laughs> which is he's got his headphones on and he's focused intensely on his laptop. You do not disturb him. Cool. It's nice to know that that fragility is not mine exclusively, that that's a problem that everyone faces. Yeah. Uh, there was one more thing in the industry that is common that you got exposed to as part of the course, which is the concept of a rubber duck. A rubber duck. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tell us what that is. Well, um, they introduced that. They introduced us to that in the prep course. Actually, they encouraged they encouraged us as we're assembling our uh, our technical requirements, our laptop, the software, the operating system, also to get our rubber duck. Um, and, and this is. Did you know what that meant when they asked you to do that? I had an inkling. Uh, it had been spoiled for me. The idea of a rubber duck is to have someone that you can explain your thinking to. If you don't have a human being to do that to, or if you're too shy to do that to a human being, because, and certainly for me anyway, it is a common experience to believe that you have architected your code perfectly. You have written it out, and it should be working. There's no reason it shouldn't be working, and it should be working beautifully, and it is not working. And you understand all the pieces, and they should all be working. So the idea of the rubber duck is that you take your rubber duck and you walk the rubber duck through the process that the code is running through. And often when you are explaining to the rubber duck patiently and in words that the rubber duck would understand, as you are explaining to the rubber duck the process of the code, you encounter the flaw in logic or more frustratingly, the flaw in syntax. And you explain, rubber duck, this is where I was stupid. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And you fix it. And then the rubber duck it appreciates your improvement and, and <laughs> the code works. Uh, we actually, at the end of Lighthouse, they, they gave us our own Larry. Larry is the, is the Lighthouse Labs uh, rubber duck mascot. So, so wow. that's, that's on my desk now at the, at the place where I work. You were more prepared than ever as a developer. Yes. Larry the rubber duck. Precisely. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how consistent that resolves problems. You just exp you take something and you say it out loud, and then uh, for me, as the words leave my mouth, I catch myself. Mm -hmm. Oh shoot, that's obviously where the problem is. <laughs> I would love to know what the history was and why it, and why it was a rubber duck rather than any. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know uh, the history? I do. Oh. Uh, and okay. I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. Okay. There is, and I forget the developer's name, but there was a developer who would carry around a rubber duck and place it right here on the edge of his laptop. Okay. And when when ran ran into a problem exactly like you described, mm -hmm. would talk to the rubber duck as if it were a person and explain to the rubber duck. Uh, and so this person just arbitrarily chose a rubber duck mm -hmm. as the as the inanimate object he would talk to, you know, instead of a pen dispenser or something. <laughs> um, and it worked wonders for him. Mm -hmm. And other people caught wind of this. And slowly but surely, and now it's rubber ducking. Uh, that's quite common in the tech industry. Like the concept of debugging mm -hmm. that you were exposed to was from a very, very old mechanical computer-esque system that stopped working because... There were physical bugs in the... Yes. Yeah. And a, a big old component called a relay literally had a moth fly in the middle and when the contactor closed it did not make a connection because there was a moth in the middle yep so and you had to physically go through the system and find the bug and take it out take it thus out debugging yes and i don't know what it is about comp sci that that just keeps rolling people love that stuff i love that stuff 
I'm finding in this industry more than in education, I'm encountering a kindred sense of humor. And I just, I thought my sense of humor was just weird and, and freakish. And no, no, I, I seem to be finding my people now. And this is, this is consistent with that. Danny, welcome to the, the awkward humor that is Comsci. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's, it's an honor to be here. Now, I don't know if this is coincidence, but after you took, after you enrolled yourself in this course and started, mm -hmm. uh, two people that are in your proximity <laughs> also enrolled themselves in the exact same course. Yes. Okay, so I've been uh, I've been roommates with a very close friend for probably seven seven years now, and he helped me design a website for a ridiculous high school project. Uh, he was a friend of a friend at the time, so didn't know him. He liked our project. He was already working in the industry as a high school student, so yeah, very cool there. And he was like, "Hey, your project is cool. Let me build you a website." Okay. <laughs> Um, and so, so met him through that process. We became really good friends. We've been roommates for a while. Um, and his girlfriend and brother were also thinking about career changes. And the original plan was that all three of us were going to do this together. So myself, his girlfriend, and his brother. Uh, at his recommendation and at the recommendation of the, the two other friends that I mentioned earlier. Um, just because of timing, uh, I actually, I was one cohort ahead of them at Lighthouse. So I was there for, they came in halfway through my, pro, uh, through my program. So that's just the way it worked out, but <laughs> yeah. you guys had all planned to do it together anyways. I was wondering if uh, you being a leader in this, in your local community had already, <laughs> had already started. Um, I don't, <laughs> I didn't feel like a leader. I mean, I saw them going through all the stresses and, and tiny excruciating moments that I had gone through at the beginning of this course when all the stress kind of just piles on you and, and all the uncertainty. It was really nice to be in a position occasionally to help them debug, although I still don't feel sure enough about myself to do that. But just to go, yes, I know exactly what you're feeling. I can tell you in how many weeks that feeling will start to fade away. I guarantee it's okay and it's normal. So, so that was, it was nice to be in that kind of position. Yeah, so you got to mentor a little bit. Yeah. Which, that's perfect. Yeah. Do you feel like you got something out of that as well? Besides just like emotional support for your, for your friends? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime, anytime you teach anything, you come out of it understanding what you are teaching better than when you went into it. Uh, whether you're teaching a rubber duck or whether you actually get a student to abuse that way. And it was also a really nice change to feel competent around other people given that for most of this course, I was in the presence of the expert mentors, but otherwise constantly struggling with my own lack of understanding and, and desire to build that understanding. That's right. And I find that I've always had moments where I'm, I'm very confident in this realm and I'm explaining it to someone. Mm -hmm. And 30 minutes later, I'm feeling like a, like a little <laughs> chicken, like being talked to and explained this brand new concept to. So... Both of those dynamics, I find, continue effectively forever. Okay. It's, it's good to know that. Uh, now, you mentioned that when you were younger, you did have some inclination towards technology, mm -hmm. but it is not what you pursued until very recently. Do you remember what was the first technology-related project you undertook that really <laughs> got you excited? Way back when? Yes. Um, the very first thing. Okay. Uh, yes, distinctly. Um, I remember my dad 
showing me electronic bulletin boards. So this was just before the internet was a thing that I could connect to. And instead what I was doing was I was calling up with, with the modem, I was calling up someone's equivalent of a web page, but it was being hosted on their local computer. I would call it up uh, and gosh, they had games available for download. Lovely shareware games, totally legal. You know, all of this, all of this was above board. And I downloaded something called ZZT. And ZZT was uh, an ASCII, uh, an ASCII game. Like the graphics were were ASCII characters, um, and it came with an editor. And the editor allowed you to make rudimentary games, and it came with a rudimentary object-oriented programming language. And the little feature, like the little characters, were the objects. So you would tell them to talk to each other with this with this programming language. So it's a very concrete way to learn this. And uh, through ZZT and then through a more advanced game called Megazooks, which was built by someone who loved ZZT but wanted to take it to the next level, I designed a bunch of really stupid, really basic computer games when I was in middle school. And, uh, and that, was my, that was my introduction. And then, I, and then I completely fell away from it for a couple of decades. Wow. So it was your interest in, in games, and you actually had access to a computer, I think, before a lot of people. Uh, and before the internet, something that I found very interesting was that even before the internet was popular, it was still possible, and I almost want to say normal, to connect to a specific endpoint. Yes. Instead of the internet where you can go anywhere. Yes. You would go to just one specific place via a phone, you know, a phone call, yep. literally. Uh, you would call up the website with your modem. Yeah. Because that's, that's a shared medium where anybody can just put up wherever they, whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And you got exposed to, via video games, creating with programming language and with code. And I remember distinctly video games that were in a terminal, like you're saying. So it's a black box with just words. Yeah. And people make shapes with words and they use like the underscore and the pipe. Yes. And they make boxes. And that whole world uh, was like alive and thriving. And that's when you jumped in. Something I wanted to mention. Um, I've lived in Toronto for almost all of my life, which is almost a meaningless thing to say, I'm, I'm finding now, because there's so many different Torontos. Uh, I spent, I, for the first time, I've spent a lot of time in kind of the King and Spadina area uh, in, order, in order to go to Lighthouse. And it was strange because the job that I got is kind of just around the corner from there when I would go out for lunch in the middle of, in the middle of class, uh, walking, walking around, seeing all of these startups, all of these, and all of these more established places. We had Shopify right across the street from us. Um, this is a part of Toronto that I did not know existed. And I was not expecting to find this concentration of an alien and, and fascinating culture in the city that I have spent 35 years in, more or less. Um, that was... That's fascinating to me. That, And I know exactly what you're saying. Even though I, I think I know the city so well, sometimes I explore a new area and just discover an entire community that I didn't know existed. And then you come out of it thinking, oh, Toronto does this too. That's kind of cool. Exactly. That's actually the, the core thing that I want people to get out of this podcast. So Spadine and King's got a lot of tech. Not too far away, you've got makerspaces. Mm-hmm. Not too far away, you've got people doing hardware stuff. And there's, there's AI stuff going on. There's all these different communities that are all vibrant and, and big. And 
that doesn't mean that they're on the front page of any newspapers or really well publicized. A lot of these communities are quieter than I expected. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you share that sentiment. Yeah. But it is neat to see them. It is neat to start thinking of myself as a member of them as well. Yeah. And absolutely you are. Like you're meaningfully employed now <laughs> in the core of that uh, industry work. So one thing that I wanted to talk about briefly, and it's not entirely tech related, mm-hmm. but it's something I was exposed to after talking to you that I thought was just the coolest thing I've found in Toronto, which is astronomy on tap. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I, I discovered it a couple of years ago, and it was because of the wife of a, a close friend uh, had just done an interview on Quirks and Quarks for some of the astronomy work that she was doing. I've, I've been into astronomy as, a, as an amateur since first year of university um, and got really excited that someone that I knew is, you know, on the radio, on a program that I listened to. Cool. Uh, and then we heard, oh, well, she's going to be giving a talk at this thing called Astronomy on Tap. We should go and support her. And I'm like, okay. Um, and, we, and we got to this place, and it's, it's sort of a, a large meeting hall, small convention center sort of space with a bar, hence the tap. And it was choked with people my age and younger and older, and everyone was really excited to be talking about astronomy and I, hundreds of people hundred, like if you didn't get there an hour early you wouldn't be able to make it inside and and there was capacity for probably two or three hundred people in there there was such a vibrant excited amateur astronomy scene people on a on a what was it a friday night that we got together it's a friday night that's I, th- right. I think it's consistently friday night so you know you spend your friday night getting together to geek out about latest developments in astronomy and to hear working astronomers talking about their projects okay this is fantastic this is this is a pretty cool thing to have in toronto yeah and it was just a few weeks ago that uh you guys shared with me that you'd gone to this venue and i showed up had the exact same experience of i can't believe how many hundreds of people are here for no other purpose than to hear about space rocks yeah. and stars. And everyone is excited. They're, they're excited. They're generous. They're, they're talking to people that they don't know. It's kind of explaining things if they notice that their neighbor is, is not understanding it. Half the people have this stupid grin on their face that I have on my face right now going, Oh my God, I'm, I'm not the only geek who loves this. Uh, yeah. yeah it, exactly. So... <laughs> I, that just that's gonna stand out as like my memory of you know November uh, that that was the coolest thing I discovered. So I, I love that the, the Toronto's got all these little pocket communities and they're passionate mm-hmm. and there's lots of them. And they gave away a telescope and the guy was ecstatic. Yes, yeah, there, it was. Uh, I mean, his chances weren't good of of getting it. It was it was a spin on a wheel, but he. he this is not a valuable thing to add no. to the conversation. I, my theory Sorry. is he's a physics major and he calculated exactly that wheel and a half rotation on. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so he knew, he knew the excitement of his odds. Got it. I wish I had that telescope. I was definitely on Amazon shortly after it was like, how much, what I want a telescope. What do I need? And there's, there's, there's like tripod mounted binoculars you can get that are similarly effective. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that there are still regular meetups just on the outskirts of the city where the light pollution isn't quite as bad. Um, 
where people are bringing their telescopes, they're teaching other people how to use different types of telescopes, they're, they're looking at cool phenomena, and these things are going on all the time. Uh, I think that the Dunlop Observatory through Toronto hosts these kinds of things as well. So if you want a more hands-on experience, but the same sort of excitement and geeking out and friendliness and community, then that might be a next step for you. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Something from the course, something from the job world? Not that I can think of. I'm really yeah. sorry. Well, we've been going for, for a while. I'm, I'm a little bit spent as well. Uh, oh, what you, you, you got into learning. We learned about Git. You mm-hmm. learned, did you learn also about automated testing? Uh, a little bit. Not as much as I would have liked to. We encountered it conceptually at the end of the first week. Um, and then we encountered it a little bit more towards the end. And I am encountering it in a big way in, in the new job that I've got, which which has been challenging because I'm programming in a language that I don't feel very comfortable in. And now I'm programming with, if, is it right to say that it's a domain-specific language when you're building a test to test? Uh, it is. I think it is in, in Ruby's sense where their test framework tends to be a, a DSL, a domain-specific language. Okay. Uh, I've done automated testing in Ruby before and I found that... Uh, it's in Ruby that it's the greatest language syntax departure from the normal programming. Okay. Which, I mean, that's consistent with their aesthetic. They want to be almost human readable, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, we're, we're using RSpec. I love the idea of test-driven development. You know, you write the tests in order to fail, and then you program to passing the tests. Right. And then, then you know what your finish line looks like. Yeah. I, I remember when I first learned about test-driven development, I was like, that kind of flips the problem on its head, and I love it. Yeah. Well, you can't get lost in the weeds because you have to be really specific about what you want your stuff to achieve ahead of time. And then you make it do that, and then you can evaluate where you are and where you want to go. Exactly. You get those unknowns figured out up front. Mm-hmm. What language are you guys working in, um, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. I do a lot of full-stack work, um, so primarily JavaScript and Python. One of the things that's very interesting is our front end is tested in a way that it actually opens up Google Chrome, loads our page, and then clicks on things Yep. and asserts that you know the correct box popped up. Or So this is way past unit testing. This is, yes. this is oh, I wish I remembered the name for it. As we call it end-to-end testing. Fair enough. Uh, where the, it's actually hooked up to a real server that works. So mm-hmm. when you click delete a thing, it actually calls, makes an IPR call and deletes the thing. Mm-hmm. And then asserts that the response comes back well and shows on the right on the page correctly, and that's the most bang for your buck in terms of, you know, if if that test passes, I know all the way up and down my stack things are working properly. Seems a little bit fragile though. If you change any of your styling or any of the page layout, you would need to re-record those mouse movements, right? Yes, if you were so the way that we do it is by oh. searching for DOM elements. Right. Okay. Yeah. So fair enough. We we actually there's even something that uh, as a convenience mm-hmm. in the early days of our testing we had a button that said you know create these seven assets in a row and hook them up together in a way that's useful and then I will take that asset and test with it. So we have a convenience button that is one pixel by one pixel and <laughs> matches the background color. Yep. That only the robot can click on. You know, only the automation can click on. Uh, and it's been super, super handy because it's saved us a ton of time oh, cool. in our tests. 
Yeah, I I need to become more comfortable with not producing immediately obvious value in what I'm doing because I appreciate conceptually the value of testing and developing a robust testing suite. But I feel like while I am doing that or while I'm thinking about budgeting my time to do that, I'm not creating the product, right? Right. Um, It feels like you're slowing yourself down. Yes. I suspect this is a known problem and a known known optimization that teams do. Uh, What is the culture around that? And, And are there any tensions between the developers who know that this is absolutely part of the backbone of development versus managers or higher ups who are more accountable to the end client who are going, we need this thing now. Right. And that I find that varies wildly between companies and between cultures. Okay. And I think there's always a healthy tension between the developers and management who are making those calls. Um, But very good managers will know and see the value in that. Like if we deliver this to the customer and we forgot to manually test something or, or if something worked when we tested it, but then we accidentally broke it two weeks later while we were adding another feature and, and we didn't notice until the customer got it in their hands, that's very valuable as a manager to, to have that confidence. And it's not immediately apparent that you get that when you're saying, I'm writing tests to make sure that it works. So... There are some managers who really see and get that value and there are others who are more like, no, we're going to manually test it. Don't worry. Let's just ship this to the partner. Let's just get this done right now. And that varies very wildly by where you work. Uh, I can share that where I work now, they really value those because the systems that we put out into production see you know, a ton of traffic. And if we have a bug, uh, the service actually doesn't come up or mm-hmm. something's wrong with it, we're losing like a hundred grand per minute or something. Ah, okay. So testing is super valuable when that's the scenario. As a safeguard. Exactly. Okay. But on the other side, if you're a startup that's just getting something off the ground and you have to receive an email from someone to know that your system doesn't work, that might be okay if you're only seeing, you know, 10 people a day or something. So testing becomes more valuable as the system is more critical. Okay. Priorities shift in that, in that pattern. Yeah. Interesting. Something that I am dreading as I as I am exposed to more and more of my company's code base and mission critical code base is being the guy who who is responsible for one of those mistakes that results in you know a hundred thousand dollars a minute of loss to the company uh, and kind of <laughs> I couldn't pay that back as an employee so so how how is that dealt with yeah. It's something that I think never goes away. It's always going to be in your head that, shoot, if, if I don't get this right, it's going to be expensive. But we have to live and play with those risks. You know, it's part of the job. And I'm very lucky to be working at a company that gets that. You know, I think every developer on my team has at some point in their career cost, you know, their annual salary in, a, in one of their bucks. Uh, and that kind of thing happens. And there's companies that react to that and say, this developer can't do the job, they're out. But by and large, most companies and the better companies will say, there's a process that we were missing. There's a check that we were missing. The fact that this person did it versus another person doing it is inevitable because our process was wrong. And there's no one more likely to ensure that mistake never happens again than the exact same person. Hmm. 
And so there's, there's no penalty. There's no, like, I look down on you for that. And that's really important. Cool. Thank you. That makes me feel much better. Are there some companies that sue their developers for the amount of lost money? Oh my goodness. That company, you know, a company that does that has got to be in a pretty bad financial spot to see that as an avenue that is beneficial to their company. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have, I have certainly cost the company near my annual salary in a couple, in once or twice okay. and made mistakes. And it happens. And I'm not the only one. I wasn't the most recent and I won't be the, the next time might be me. You know, these kinds of things happen. So what's important is that the infrastructure around it and uh, really good companies. And I know Shopify is one of them mm -hmm. where they automatically deploy all the way to production. So they, they run all the tests, they vet your code as much as they can, and then it get, goes live. And then they've got a monitoring system. So they say, okay, this new version of the thing we're just about to release, let's send a tiny percentage of traffic to that and let's see if that goes well. And if it does, more and more traffic comes over. Oh, cool. And if something goes wrong with that deployment, automatically there's systems in place that will send the traffic back to the old version, take mm -hmm. yours offline, and there's nothing you need to do. You know? What a smart system. Something like that, where there's an automated thing in place that monitors production and takes actions accordingly. Mm -hmm. Because human error is inevitable. So it's important to have a process that deals with human error because we, we are not machines. As much as we try to transform ourselves into them to communicate with them. Yeah, as much, exactly. As much as I think when I code, I am a machine. You, I, I wanted to use the analogy is who's ever written an email that was 500 words and as soon as they finished it, they hit send because they knew it was perfect. Probably nobody. Or people who then experienced embarrassment anyway. Yeah. <laughs> And it's the same. If there's something about, at least for me, when I write anything of length, I'm going to not have get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something about the way that human beings work, I think. Well, Danny, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Real pleasure, real honor. Good luck. Thank you, Danny, for being on the podcast. This is your community, Toronto. Connect with us and send us your feedback at Toronto Tech Podcast on Twitter or at torontotechpodcast.ca. Today's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is Tell Me You Know by Good Kids.